And he looked me straight in the face and said, and you want to be an OBGYN? Then you've got to know how that happens and how to prevent that. This is Caring for Both, a curbside consult series by the American Association of Pro-Life Obstetricians and Gynecologists, where experts offer insights on what it means to provide evidence-based, life-affirming health care to both pregnant women and their preborn children. We upload new episodes every Thursday. I'm your host for today, Miriam Diallo. This will be part two of a two-part conversation with Alexandra Davidson, a fourth-year medical student in Kansas, on the topic of how medical professionals can help build a more life-affirming society. Let's jump into it. Alexandra, in the first half of this conversation, uh, you listed uh, a lot of challenges and systemic issues that we as a society are facing that's keeping us from being able to build a holistically life-affirming society, uh, both for women who find themselves pregnant under tough circumstances, end up considering abortion, and even for medical professionals, which you know you yourself are, are medical students. So um, let's go back down the list of the factors that we talked about and maybe suggest some solutions. Uh, The first topic we talked about was societal narratives around relationships and sex. How can medical professionals help shift the culture that we have uh, surrounding relationships and sex? First, if you're in a specialty that asks patients about their family planning goals Reconsider the language that you're using when you have that conversation with patients. And if you're in a position as an educator for medical students, all of which learn about having these conversations, reconsider how you teach them to ask about these things. So instead of defaulting to asking, what contraception are you using? Instead, ask patients something along the lines of, what are your family planning goals? Because... If you ask someone what contraception are you using, that implies that you should be using something, that you want to avoid pregnancy, and that further pathologizes pregnancy unnecessarily. Because some people do want to be pregnant, or maybe some people aren't having sex. And assuming that everyone is and should be using contraception is just feeding into that mentality I talked about in the last episode. When you do have conversations with patients about contraception, I would encourage you to avoid using sweeping terms like very effective. And, you know, I know time is very limited in clinical settings, but if you could go in a little bit more depth about counseling and say things like, you know, three in a hundred women on average will experience a pregnancy in a year with this option or less than one or something like that. Because when you say very effective, I feel like a lot of times it leads people to believe that the risk is zero or essentially zero. And if they have that in their head, like we talked about before, that can lead to 
less informed consent really in the behaviors that they're taking because they're putting more trust in that contraception than maybe they would otherwise if they had a more accurate understanding of truly what the risks benefits um, ratio was for them personally. And then when you educate medical students, if you're involved in that in any way, talk to them about the reality of contraceptive efficacy. Because again, in medical school, you know, maybe they show us a chart or something about the statistics, but there isn't much conversation surrounding the events of pregnancy in the context of perfect use or even very good use of contraceptive methods. And I think it feeds into a lot of that systemic judgment that assumes that if a patient comes in pregnant, it must be their fault, so to speak. They weren't diligent enough. They didn't choose a reliable enough method because they didn't like it. And so, you know, this is their problem and it's all on them. And then another thing where there's a lot of room for improvement is better education about fertility awareness-based methods. And the subtle but important difference between fertility awareness-based methods and traditional forms of pregnancy risk reduction strategies, which I would say is probably a more accurate term to use than birth control or contraception, which imply that you're in control or, you know, you're definitely not getting pregnant, which is just in reality not the case. Um, they don't decouple fertility from sex in the same way. And so I think when patients I think when patients experience an unplanned pregnancy with a fertility awareness-based method, they may have a better time coping with it because they had a better sense of informed consent every time they chose to engage in sex than someone who has this false sense of security over something that is pretty reliable, but far from being bulletproof, so to speak. And a lot of patients and med students don't know much about basic fertility, things like cervical mucus and the indicators of fertility and you know, what are evidence-based fertility awareness-based methods versus kind of concocted ones that really aren't reliable because there's a lot of misconceptions about the efficacy and the different ones. And there's a wide range regarding that. And physicians generally don't have the education to be able to counsel patients on that, to offer it to patients when it's something they're interested in or when they come in asking about it. And so that those are some very doable things that could be implemented today. Absolutely. Those are some really important considerations. And obviously, you know, physicians can only say so much within the however many minutes that they're talking to patients in an appointment. But it is important to be mindful of the framing that 
uh, you're using when you talk about contraception. Um, and it's also important to consider that it needs to be communicated to patients that every form of contraception has a failure rate that is not zero. And so um, obviously, if it's only, you know, quote unquote, only one or two percent per year, that's still, you know, one or two percent times however many millions of women are on uh, birth control. That's still a significant number. That's thousands of women, you know, who still get pregnant every year despite using uh, contraception. So uh, that's important to get across. You know, there is still a possibility of pregnancy. Uh, in terms of other podcast episodes that I would recommend people listen to, we had on Dr. Marguerite Duane, who's the executive director of Facts About Fertility, um, and she talked about fertility awareness-based family planning methods. And uh, that was episode 17 and 18 of our podcast. I thought it was super helpful. So if you want to learn a little bit more about Alexander, what Alexander talked about with regards to FABMs, that would be the episode to look toward. Um, shifting a little bit to the other topic that we talked about in, our, uh, in the last half of this conversation, how can medical professionals help improve the support that families get, uh, especially for fellow medical students or medical professionals? So... Again, rethink the reactions you have to certain situations and what you say in those moments or don't say. Don't make negative comments about students with children or students that are pregnant. And I didn't have this happen to me very often during my two pregnancies, but it also didn't never happen. And I think the worst example of this was when I was with a surgical attending during my second pregnancy on my surgery rotation. And he had just met me. I disclosed to him that I was about eight weeks pregnant at the time in case, you know, I had any trouble in the OR not feeling well during that first trimester. And he asked me if I had any other kids and I told him, yeah, I have a, a one-year-old at the time at home. And he looked me straight in the face and said, and you want to be an OBGYN? Then you've got to know how that happens and how to prevent oh, that. No. And uh, the layers of like insult in that short right. phrase, like implying that I didn't know how I got pregnant. I didn't want to get pregnant. It was a problem to be pregnant as a medical student. It was a problem to be pregnant as an OBGYN. I'm very fortunate that in the community I'm in, most people have been very supportive, but I don't think that he is the only person in medicine that has made comments like this to students or other attendings. Worst case scenario, just don't say anything. Um, I have had some people make some positive comments to me, which I did find to be a good experience. Um, there was another attending in the group with the same first attending that made the horrible comments to me. So ironically, it was his partner um, had five children well he had four children and was expecting his fifth and he was very supportive of me um which I so appreciated and part of how he supported me in addition to just verbalizing that he was supportive was when I was on clinic rotations with him 
Um, he knew that the specialty was that he was in wasn't something that I was particularly interested in or was particularly relevant to OBGYN, which is what I had already decided to go into at that point. And he knew I didn't feel great. He knew I had a, a toddler at home. And so he would kind of look at his schedule and be like, you know what? you're really not going to get that much out of the rest of, you know, the patient cases in clinic today, go home and take a nap. And that was so helpful to me. And I think having that mentality that dismisses this toxic professionalism that we embrace so much in medicine, that the med student should be always present, always perky, you know, not have to eat, not have to sit, not have to let go of the retractor, you know, be studied up on everything, not be pregnant, um, is something we can let go of as a medical field. And being understanding of absences, sick children, offering options to learn from home, and looking at those situations where it's like, you know, is this really beneficial to the med students learning Or is this just making them to be here? Or are we just asking them to be here for the sake of being here? And realizing that med students are people with lives too. And maybe it would be in the best interest of their own health and education to go home and take a nap. Or do the dishes. Or go run those errands that they haven't been able to run. And I'm not saying that, you know, we should let med students be dashing out on rotations all the time. But like many of the things I'm discussing, we treat it kind of in an all-or-nothing fashion. And I think if we took it in more of a case-by-case approach and looked for more balance and opportunities where we can find spaces and opportunities to help lighten that burden of unnecessary components, we should be doing that. And if you as a physician or someone in leadership... What can you do to be supportive of these sort of things? How can you promote family-friendly social events, like bring your kids to them um, so residents or attendings aren't having to choose between finding, you know, situational child care, which can be challenging for a variety of reasons or not coming or feeling like they're bothering people by bringing their kids Um, one thing that my school has been really fantastic about because we actually have a lot of children among our medical students on my particular campus is doing food trains for students, um, after they have a baby for about a month, which is super helpful. Reassessing work hours. So, um, one of the attendings, Uh, locally has three children and she works extremely hard when she's at work but she is done for the day at three o'clock and she picks her kids up from school and she's present for them and so she maybe doesn't work 40 hours a week she gets probably 40 hours of work done if not well over that in a week but she has the scheduling flexibility to be able to be present in her children's lives as well as be an extremely dedicated and valuable physician in our local community. And then what can you do to support good quality child care for attendings you work with, residents or medical students? Because like I said, in my area, that is such a struggle 
It has been for me and it has been for a lot of other people I've talked to. And so any solutions that we can find in that area are something that could be extremely valuable. And then in terms of that shorter term postpartum phase, going back to lactation a little bit, how can you help make sure that women in medicine who choose to breastfeed have space and time to pump? Look for opportunities to advocate for residents. Maybe someone else is giving them a hard time. Be their champion. Say like, hey, this is important. This is what we recommend to patients. We should be taking our own advice and figuring out how to make this doable for our medical students, our residents, and our attendings. Help write official policies that protect that for people. So if you're not around or if there's anything that gets escalated to HR, they're backed up by that paperwork. Those are all some really important suggestions and considerations. Um, Obviously, I I would hope that our listeners would not be the types to make negative comments about students with uh, children or or pregnancies. Um, But it's also important to consider the nuance of not being unrealistically positive about it either. And that's whether you're talking to your colleagues or med students in in your workplace or whether you're talking to patients or other women who are potentially considering terminating their pregnancy because, uh, you know, on the pro-life side, we, we like to talk about, you know, the, the positives of motherhood. And obviously there are many, but um, we don't want to come across as saying that uh, it's not difficult uh, and, because it is, uh, especially in the society that we currently live in. Um, and related to that, as you mentioned, you know, uh, everybody should do the par- their part in their workplace to make uh, their work environment more family friendly and support uh, students and colleagues who have families in the variety of ways that you mentioned. So those those are all considerations that are extremely important for all medical professionals. But also I'm wondering what you think about uh, what medical professionals can do outside the field of healthcare as well. What do you think medical professionals can do to create a more life-affirming society and to address these problems uh, outside of their own work? So One thing I want to reiterate, because I think it's extremely important, is getting involved locally in sexual education and finding a way to do it such that it's respectful, it's comprehensive, it's appropriate, and it's not that all-or-nothing approach. And working with others that you know to come up with ideas to do this in a more effective way, looking at things that have been done in the past... I think could have effects that ripple out through generations if we start by teaching our youth to think differently. Advocate for pumping protection. So there are a lot of women throughout the country that also struggle with the logistics of being able to pump in their workplace for a variety of reasons. And if you ever see opportunities to advocate for women to be able to pump in a sanitary space to have adequate time to do that, that's something that matters. A much larger topic is working against the double standard that women are so often faced with. Um, 
the societal expectation for the amount of effort that women should put into homemaking and child rearing versus men and the different tasks involved in that is, you know, making a sweeping generalization very unbalanced. And I've seen people push back against this by, you know, saying, when I'm at home with my children as a father, I'm not babysitting my kids. I am being a parent to my children just as would be the case as if my wife or my partner was at home doing the same thing. Instead of saying, you know, like, I'm helping my wife, which implies that all of this is your wife's job and you're just being nice and helping out, you know, phrase things in in the terms of, you know, what are we doing together to make this household function in a situation where we have different interests and different skills and different things we don't like to do. And then finally, rethink how you talk to your kids, your friends, and your community when it comes to maybe witnessing undesirable behavior demonstrated by children. Be an example. Instead of side-eyeing the mom on the airplane or in the grocery store that has the kid that's on the floor tantruming, tell her she's doing a good job. See if there's anything you can do to help. And not from a judgmental standpoint, but from a standpoint, like I said, that that's normal, regardless of how good of a parent you are. Um, Trying to alleviate some of that stress of, like, my existence in public is a burden to other people because I have children and challenging that expectation, um, whether it be making a supportive comment, you know, challenging other people that are maybe acting contrary to that if you see the opportunity. And there are ways to do that respectfully, I think. But becoming, you know, a part of that idea that children are just as much a part of the society and have just as much right to be out in society as well as mothers as anyone else who, you know, isn't going to fall down on the floor and start crying or yelling or dancing or skipping or what have you. Um, And just being able to embrace that joyfully and help others to embrace it joyfully or at least, you know, not look askance at it. Absolutely. And those are all really great points. And they're all points that are not necessarily limited to medical professionals. Alexander, you've, you've offered a lot of really important points and a lot of great recommendations and considerations. Uh, you've also mentioned a, a few specific resources that people can, can go to uh, that would help. But um, what are some other resources you might recommend that would help listeners work towards what we've been talking about? I, I've come across a, a lot of different resources. Some of the ones that I like the most are Latched Mama, like I mentioned earlier. They have a group for moms specifically. They have a main page that just has kind of hot takes on some of these, when you really sit down and think about it, ridiculous expectations for moms Um, that help you feel a little bit less like you're crazy when someone else, you know, puts it out there and is like, actually, this is ridiculous, but this is the expectation. And then we feel bad about not being able to meet it. Um, There's this hilarious mother of five um, who makes videos that 
celebrate the ups and downs of motherhood in a very raw way, um, an often humorous way. Um, I believe her name's Emily Vondi and she's on Facebook and probably like Instagram or something is the Vondi fam. Um, dude dad is on YouTube and he's a very positive content creator, um, that shows a lot of kind of the duality of parenthood and the simultaneous challenges, but joys as well, um, that I, I enjoy watching as a parent, um, also, if you want to watch shows with young kids, Bluey is actually a surprisingly good show that challenges, I think, a lot of people to be better parents and simultaneously makes them feel a little bit guilty for not being better parents sometimes. If you want to get into some uh, more heavy content, um, there are two books that are very relevant to a lot of what I've discussed today. Um neither of them gets into the exact niche that I got into, but between the two of them, a lot of these topics are explored in a far more detailed fashion than I was able to get into here. The first one's titled Letter to a Young Female Physician by Dr. Suzanne Coven, and the other is The Case Against the Sexual Revolution by Louise Perry. And that comes at a lot of these factors from a completely secular evidence-based perspective. It's an extremely interesting read and also a pretty recent publication. Thank you so much for joining us to share your insights here today. Thank you so much for the opportunity to talk um, about this topic, which is very near and dear to my heart. And a massive thank you to our listeners for joining us today. If you like this episode, be sure to give us a five-star rating and a review on whatever podcast app you're using to listen. If you have any topic requests, you can reach out to us on social media via the links in the description of this episode or via email at info at aaplog.org. If you're a medical professional interested in joining the AppLog community, we'd love to have you become a member by going to aaplog.org join. We exist to support your pro-life practice. We will see you next week.